Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic... Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is episode one in a five-part series focused on agitation in children. This podcast is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. And since this is episode one, I figured we'd start at the beginning and address the age-old question of differentiating organic versus psychiatric causes of agitation and altered mental status. The key learning objectives of this episode are to describe the findings on history and physical examination that help you make this differentiation and develop a strategy to help you work up medical causes of agitation and altered mental status. And before I begin, let me say that in practice, most of the children presenting to EDs with mental health problems, and there's a lot of them, have a known mental or behavioral issue. So often when we're asked to medically clear a patient, we're being asked to say that there's no problem or substrate, intrinsic or extrinsic, inborn or ingested, that is causing the altered behavior and mood. That's super easy, right? And frankly, this issue of organic or psychiatric has actually long been derided. In fact, Wilson, yeah, that Dr. Wilson, the copper disease guy, said that the functional organic distinction lingers at the bedside and in medical literature, though it is transparently false and has been abandoned long since by all contemplative minds. And this was in the textbook Neurology in the 1940s. And yet, this distinction persists in medical education. You've all attended a lecture with this topic. So, I acknowledge that this is a somewhat artificial distinction between psychiatry and neurology. And it's a bit of a naive discrimination that may encourage the continued stigmatization of mental health problems. So I'd like you to think of this episode less like, is it psych or not? And more about not missing something because you assume the patient had a mental or behavioral problem accounting for their agitation or altered mental status. And again, I'll reiterate that figuring out if something is medical or psychiatric in instances of acute agitation and altered mental status is entirely different than quote unquote medical clearance for many mental health visits. And I still think that this is a useful exercise in sharpening your diagnostic skills. So let me start out with a few definitions because I'm going to be using these terms throughout the episode. Psychosis is a disruption in thinking accompanied by delusions or hallucinations. Delusions are false, fixed beliefs that cannot be resolved through logical argument. Hallucinations are false perceptions that have no basis in external stimuli. Delirium, which is not a term we use often in children, but maybe we should, is an altered sensorium with waxing and waning deficits in attention and concentration. Orientation and concentration are preserved in functional psychosis. Agitation is a feeling of irritability or restlessness. And that's a pretty vague term, right? So when you're taking a history of somebody who is agitated and has altered mental status, it's important to try to get a history from both the patient and the caregivers if possible, because this information can certainly be different. 
ask both parties about why they believe they are presenting to the emergency department. Sometimes this helps us identify triggers for an episode, environment, people, etc. And maybe these behaviors are just gradually escalated. And the caregiver is the one who's going to give you that information, especially if they're fearful for their own safety or worried about the safety of the patient or other individuals. And you also certainly want to ask about suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, and audio or visual hallucinations. Taking an accurate past medical history is obviously important, so autism developmental delay, sensory processing disorder, and psychiatric conditions are clearly important. Prior engagement with the mental health system is paramount to ascertain as well. A family history of psychiatric disease or long-standing bizarre behaviors supporting a diagnosis of a psychiatric disease is very helpful historical information to obtain. Still, developing a psychotic disorder before the age of 12 is rare. So I'll reiterate this again and again in this population, medical much more likely than psych in acute agitation. And so unless there's a past history of the exact same behavior or an existing psychiatric diagnosis, it is dangerous to assume that the cause of true altered mental status is psych alone. Acute onset altered mental status rather than gradual is more common in medical causes. And so you need to take that accurate history of when the behaviors changed, the rate of changed, when the patient was last acting normal, has this ever happened before, and what was the context? You obviously want to take a history of drug use or exposure. You know, the teen coming from a music festival, abrupt change in toddler's behavior and suspected ingestion. This is where knowing your common toxindromes is helpful. You know, your sympathomimetic, what a diphenhydramine ingestion looks like, synthetic cannabinoids, etc., etc. The list is long. You may also see toxicologic effects from current medications or changes in medications. Corticosteroids, antiepileptics, atypical antipsychotics, isoniazid, amoxicillin, erythromycin, erythro. These can all cause neuropsychiatric symptoms, including anxiety and hallucinations. Constitutional symptoms such as fevers, chills, and headache indicate an infectious etiology, you know, meningitis, encephalitis, sepsis. A history of a rheumatologic or inflammatory disease, well, like lupus encephalitis, head trauma, indicates intracranial injury. Be careful with patients that headbang as a measure of their agitation or self-stimulation. New onset of neurologic deficits is something you cannot miss. And this is like a stroke, brain abscess, brain tumor. Patient with seizure disorder or signs suggestive of seizures, such as inattentiveness, rhythmic blinking, or other stereotype movements. Don't mistake this for catatonia. Prior episodes associated with possible precipitating factors, such as menstruation, medication, stress, or vomiting or headache, could suggest a metabolic disease. We'll talk about some of those in a little bit. On physical exam, make sure that the vitals are normal. You know, the brain's getting enough oxygen, the patient isn't febrile, and that the patient doesn't have signs of hypoglycemia, altered mental status, diaphoresis, tachycardia, hypotension, You need to fix those things relatively quickly. The mental status exam is incredibly important, and patients with psychiatric illness typically have normal vital signs, normal orientation to person, place, and time, and intact memory with good cognitive functioning. Hallucinations are usually auditory in nature. Medical psychosis usually has abnormal vital signs, altered mental status, and impaired orientation with compromised intellectual function. Visual and tactile hallucinations are more classically organic, 
but brief hallucinations can occur in normal situations like falling asleep and waking, bereavement, sleep deprivation, or drinking too much caffeine. If you're going to rule out a medical cause, then the neurologic examination must be normal. Any abnormal neurologic finding that is unexplained is medical until proven otherwise and needs a workup. The pupil exam is particularly testable. It's often helpful in figuring things out. Conditions that affect the brain diffusely often spare the pupils, except for opiates. If you see a patient who is altered and has meiosis, tiny pupils, think cholinergic, clonidine, opiates, organophosphates, sedative hypnotics. Patients with giant pupils, medriasis, this may be an antihistamine ingestion, antidepressants, anticholinergic, or sympathomimetics. Unilateral enlargement greater than 5 millimeters and depressed mental status is herniation until proven otherwise. Don't miss that. And nystagmus can be seen in certain ingestions such as ketamine. Now, let me address functional neurologic symptoms for a moment. And fortunately, I've noted a bit of a sea change in how we address patients with these types of symptoms. I can recall many times early in my career where I heard, oh, he's just faking. In general, catatonic patients preserve the ability to maintain their posture. Patients with functional neurologic problems generally avoid hitting their face with a falling arm, resist eyelid opening, raise heart rates to auditory or painful or noxious stimuli like smelling salts, and have intact deep tendon, oculovestibular, and oculocephalic reflexes. These are those classic things that I'll teach you how to do in the adult ED. Fortunately, in my experience, a thorough clinician is able to figure out if something is off and initiate a workup in many instances. You should tailor this workup towards your findings and your index of suspicion, as well as a well-constructed differential diagnosis. And Honestly, reading everything that could cause agitation and altered mental status would double or triple the length of the episode, so I ain't going to do that. But I will go over a few of the big categories and some can't-miss diagnoses. First, I will mention some of the toxindromes, because that's perhaps what people think of the most often, and the following drugs, among many others, can present with agitation. This includes anticholinergics, sympathomimetics, and hallucinogens such as LSD, as well as marijuana. Central nervous system causes include masses, intracranial injury, stroke, seizure, especially post-ictal psychosis and temporal lobe epilepsy, meningoencephalitis, and even subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which occurs with a measles infection. Get your kids vaccinated, people. Lupus encephalitis will have auditory and tactile hallucinations. And there are many metabolic diseases that can present later in childhood or in adolescence with agitation and altered mental status. So urea cycle defects. These would be recurrent episodes of bizarre behavior, hallucinations or delusions during adolescence and early adulthood. Patients will typically complain of headache, they'll have vomiting. There's a delayed presentation, which is most common with partial ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. Interestingly, on history, these patients will say that they eat a lot of vegetables because eating a lot of protein will cause headaches. Acute intermittent porphyria leads to psychiatric complaints and psychosis, hysteria, anxiety, apathy, depression, phobias, agitation, delirium, and altered consciousness. Drugs that induce the P450 microsomal oxidase system, like barbiturates, fasting, and an intercurrent illness or premenstrual hormone changes 
can worsen acute intermittent porphyria. Wilson's disease is the copper one. It presents during adolescence with subacute psychiatric symptoms, so depression all the way to frank psychosis like catatonia and paranoia. If you get labs to work this up, which is kind of a good idea, you'll see low ceruloplasmin concentrations and elevated urinary copper excretion. Oh yeah, something about Kaiser Fleischer rings. It's potentially reversible, so figure it out. And there's lots of others. Postpartum psychosis is seen up to 30 days after childbirth. Patients will be paranoid. They'll have delusions and hallucinations. Electrolyte disturbances can cause agitation and altered mental status. Hyponatremia or hypernatremia, you'll see behavioral changes and encephalopathy that may be difficult to distinguish from garden variety psychosis. Hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia may rarely cause frank psychosis. Patients that are uremic or have hepatic encephalopathy will have acute mental status changes with hallucinations. Hashimoto encephalopathy is a rare thyroid psychosis not often seen in children, but thyroid storm can be seen, and you'll see psychotic symptoms along with high fever and autonomic symptoms. And yes, of course, there are many psychiatric diagnoses that cause agitation. Depression, bipolar disorder, childhood onset schizophrenia, and brief reactive psychosis are on the short list, but there are many others. Again, a history of mental illness in the family or the patient themselves, emotional trauma, subacute to chronic symptoms, and a coexistent mood disorder suggest a primary psychiatric disorder over something organic or medical. All right, let's talk about management. So in the patient with acute agitation, start with the ABCs, vital signs, IV access, and glucose. If the patient's a danger to themselves and they are protecting their airway and not in cardiorespiratory failure, try non-pharmacologic means first. But medical management may be necessary to keep them safe. So if there's no prior mental health history, consider benzodiazepines. More on that in the upcoming medical management episode number three in this series. Now, ventilation may be impaired by a declining respiratory drive or muscle dysfunction due to an organic process. Remember that hypoxia causes agitation, whereas hypercarbia leads to somnolence. Your goal O2 sat should be greater than 95%. Use end-tidal CO2 monitoring and intubate patients who cannot sustain adequate oxygenation or ventilation. Don't delay that decision, especially if you're worried about a significant intracranial process. Any concern for opiate intoxication should follow with a dose of IV or nasal Narcan. Other antidotes are less widely used at the point of care. So don't give flumazenil for a benzo overdose. That could precipitate seizures and then you can't treat them. Definitely talk to a toxicologist if you're considering going that route. Physostigmine may transiently improve mental status and anticholinergic ingestion. But again, call a toxicologist. Lab studies should ideally be based on concerning findings on the history and physical. Ask yourself the following question before drawing a lab. Will the result alter the approach to treatment? Will it return in time to affect therapy positively? This includes blood studies, urine studies, point-of-care studies. We'll talk about lumbar puncture in a little bit. And so some of the labs that can be useful include an ISTAT or rapid blood gas, an AccuCheck was just as a glucose alone, a renal or electrolyte panel or CHEM7, lots of different names for the same thing, CBC and differential along with a blood culture if the patient is febrile or if you're worried about infection, 
Toxicologic studies, which have variable utility, include acetaminophen and salicylate levels, ethanol or urine drug screens, or specific drug levels if there's an ingestion or if a patient's on a med chronically, a beta-HCG in all patients with female reproductive organs. Some other labs to consider include TSH with a reflex to the free T4, ammonia, and many more. Let me unpackage drug levels and toxicology studies a little bit. They are routinely sent but they're less helpful than we hope. So acetaminophen ingestions are usually symptomatic by four to six hours. This is per spore in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine from 1996. There's lots more studies that back this up as well. This was a retrospective review of uh, more than 1,800 patients with SI or altered mental status with a suspected ingestion. Less than 1% had toxic acetaminophen levels not suggested by the history. None of those patients required N-acetylcysteine. There's other studies from the recent past as well, retrospectively, that show that patients can have elevated acetaminophen levels if it's an unknown ingestion, but it's rare that if you did not know the patient took acetaminophen, that you'll get a level that's high enough to treat. If the level is elevated, then repeat it four hours. If an acetaminophen level is elevated to the point where it crosses the treatment line, or they've taken a massive overdose beyond the thresholds, start NAC. Salicylate ingestions are much rarer in children. It's still recommended that we often obtain them in the unknown ingestion with altered mental status. The Doan nomogram is no longer routinely used. A salicylate level greater than 90 to 100 are usually associated with severe toxicity. You may need multiple determinations in massive ingestions or in sustained release preparations. Ethanol levels can be helpful in the patient who is agitated or comatose and you suspect that they've been drinking along with other drugs. The elimination generally follows zero-order kinetics for naive drinkers. So that could be a rate of only 10 milligrams per deciliter per hour. That's going to take a long time to metabolize. More habitual drinkers will metabolize faster, 12, 15, 25 milligrams per deciliter per hour. There's a rough correlation between level and symptoms, and a level less than 300 in a comatose patient should prompt search for another cause. Urine drug screens are, well, let's face it, not that helpful at all, but they're obtained often. Urine metabolites can be seen for two to three days. If you get a blood drug screen, it's only about six to 12 hours. And ask yourself, does a toxicology screen affect the management of a patient who has taken an overdose? The cumulative evidence suggests not. Even if it's positive, it rarely alters management. Plus, not everything is detected on a urine drug screen. So what's screened at your institution may be different from the hospital down the street. Be familiar with what your urine drug screen can pick up and why you might need it. Other than labs, we often obtain EKGs. So if somebody has abnormal vital signs and suspected ingestion, it's a great idea. You know, for instance, EKG could be diagnostic for a serious tricyclic antidepressant overdose. You'll see QRS widening, a rightward shift of the terminal 40 milliseconds of the frontal plane of the QRS complex, and terminal R waves in AVR. LP and CSF studies are helpful if you suspect meningitis or encephalitis. But ask yourself, is that patient stable enough? Is sedation necessary and safe to get the LP? If the patient is not septic, you can defer antibiotics until after CSF studies. 
Either way, ceftriaxone, vancomycin, and encyclovir, remember that HSV can cause temporal lobe encephalitis and behavioral changes, are the mainstays of empiric therapy. Get a head CT if you're worried that the patient has elevated intracranial pressure, they've had head trauma, they have coma of unexplained etiology, they're agitated and you're not sure why, they have a CSF shunt, any focal neurologic findings, or if you've had an unsupervised child, the CT may need to be a prelude to any LP you perform if you suspect an intracranial process. Okay, so with that discussion on workup, I can't ignore the fact that most patients don't actually need any studies to establish that they are medically cleared in our clinical environments. In fact, Choosing Wisely recently released their recommendations for pediatric emergency care, and I'm going to quote that recommendation verbatim here. Most children with acute mental health issues do not have underlying medical etiologies for these symptoms. A large body of evidence in both adults and children has shown that routine laboratory testing without clinical indication is unnecessary and adds to health care costs. Any diagnostic testing should be based on a thorough history and physical examination. Universal requirements for routine testing should be abandoned. Think about that the next time you're asked to get labs to medically clear a patient. All right, so that's it for episode one of the Agitation podcast series. Today, we reviewed the organic versus psychiatric divide and realized that it's not so clear. We discussed how a thorough history and physical guides any evaluation that we perform. In the second episode, we're going to discuss non-pharmacologic management of agitated children, the first steps in keeping them calm and safe. This episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast, was again a collaboration with the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. You can learn more about their work and mission at emscimprovement.center. You can also check out pemblog.com for more great educational content. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter if you're still using it, at PemTweets. And if you have any feedback about this episode or any in the series, shoot me an email, a direct message on Twitter, a comment on the blog, or any way you want to get your feedback across. This has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.